how's your day been? Yeah, it's been good. I went to like a uh, hot yoga. I haven't been in like a month and sometimes I do and I feel really good and other times I can't do it. So today I did it and I feel really nice. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Hot yoga is actually like my, I'm addicted to it. Yeah, I feel like so calm afterwards and like I like that you do the exact same thing every single time so my body kind of like it knows what to expect which is like helpful. Hi, I'm Olivia Dreisinger. I'm a second generation sick woman concerned with all things disability. Um, Handler's Crazy is a short documentary about Coyote Moon and her medical and psychiatric service dog, Banner. The film explores issues surrounding non-visible disabilities and discrimination against service dog teams. Making this documentary was really unexpected for me. Uh, my friend had randomly sent me Banner's Instagram page, which back then mostly featured Banner cosplaying characters from different TV and movie fandoms paired with captions about different disability-related things, like this character has PTSD or this character has anxiety. Um, and Banner had like, I think at the time, 20,000 followers on Instagram, which is, I think, pretty substantial for a dog page. And I think now it's at 30,000, so it's doing pretty well. Um, and around that time, I'd actually been researching the intersections of furry fandom, neurodiversity, and disability. And the furry fandom, for those who need a definition, is a community of people who enjoy drawing, dressing up, or writing about animal characters who have human-like traits. Scrolling through her Instagram with a cosplaying dog talking about disability rights, I thought, yes, this person must be a disabled furry. Um, so at that point, I decided to reach out to Coyote and asked her, just, I think my message was, are you a furry? There is no other context. And she just said no. Um, but so after that, I started looking more closely at Banner as a service dog and became really interested in how cosplay was an atypical labor that her service dog performed for her, as well as an atypical form of medical equipment decoration. And then after that, more broadly, I became interested in the experience of service dog teams and whatever disabilities came with that um, were fine by me. But that initial point of contact of just asking if she was a furry eventually led me to establishing a relationship with Coyote and then later led me to apply for funding to make the documentary about her life with Banner. I had asked her if she wanted to do a documentary. She said yes and I said, you know, I'll apply for funding but I don't think I'm going to get anything. And then months and months go by and I, I get the funding miraculously and I'm like oh no what if she doesn't actually want to do this um what am I going to do with this grant I guess I have to give it back so thankfully she was still interested in doing it and that was I think shortly after we actually had our first phone call and that was really the first time I had kind of talked to her and kind of figured out like more about her life and like the direction of the documentary. She like on, on her social media pages, she's pretty open about like many aspects of her life. So it was pretty easy for me to kind of map out certain things. But of course, like, you know, when you finally do meet that person in real life, there's so many other things that you didn't account for or really understand about their life that they don't share online. And that those were the nice parts that I tried to show in the documentary, like things that you wouldn't see in social media and that were much more intimate and personal. 
She lives in Menlo, Georgia. I didn't find this out until after we had agreed, <laughs> after I had found funding. And I Googled Menlo, Georgia, I think, like, when I was booking the plane tickets. And it's two hours outside of Atlanta, and it's a town of 500 people. And I was like, oh my gosh, where are we going? Somehow, you know, she's crafted this pretty successful social media page from that small town. Um, but from that initial point of contact, I want to say it was probably in like the fall of uh, 2017, I had talked to her. And then I did a presentation on her at McGill. And then I, people encouraged me to apply for funding, which I then did. And then I think I got that in like, I want to say June of last year. And then we and then we went over in September of last year, and that was the first time I'd met her in person. And um, it was a very interesting, really nice experience. There was me, and then I just did the directing, and then we had a the camera person, a sound person, and then I had hired a person to support me so that I wouldn't get too tired um, during the filming process. So they basically just, their only tasks were to cook, do the dishes, grocery shop, and drive us. So that was very helpful. How do we ask animals to support us? Do animals understand disability? Um, what do we ask of them when we ask them for support? What risks are involved? Um, these are all questions I've been thinking about in the aftermath of putting my documentary out there. And I, and I think with this, it might be helpful to actually bring up an attempt to define tasks that service animals can perform and to untangle um, emotional support animals from service animals. So emotional support animals, or ESAs, their main role is to provide comfort, care, and companionship. And emotional support by the American with Disabilities Act standards is, um, it's not a legitimate task. So by that I mean asking animals to care for us is not a testable or trainable task. Unlike asking an animal to perform blood pressure alerts or retrieve items, or you know, remind us to take our medication. Uh, service animals have more rights than ESAs because they're specifically trained to perform tasks that fit their handler's needs. There then becomes these different, this different level of legitimacy that reflect the type of support people require. And comfort and companionship um, are always seen as less legitimate, which I find really weird. And um, I want to know why. Um, and I also want to think about what support service animals require from us. Um, in order to work for us. In the documentary at the very start, we see um, Coyote's service dog in training, Smeagol. And um, between trips, uh, she was actually attacked by uh, another dog while doing public access training in a store and um, washed out after that. So by the time we went back for our last, um, our second and last trip, Smeagol was no longer there. 
um, because she had to be rehomed um, since the attack left uh, the dog really traumatized. And um, Banner has also been attacked multiple times by other dogs. Um, attacks that have put Coyote's own body on the line in order to protect Banner. Um, so my last question to think about is, what do we ask of animals when there is risk in what they do for us? I think because of the short filming time for the documentary, I wasn't really able to address any of these things and I kind of had to re-divert a lot of the things that I wanted to explore into just kind of making a, a nice documentary um, that was kind of accessible to like non-disabled people or non-service dog users to watch. People want to define like a pet from something that can perform like provide more testable, certifiable assistance to disabled people. Otherwise, I feel like they're just worried that chaos will ensue if pets are everywhere, which is probably true. Um, <laughs> especially if they're not good with other dogs or not socialized properly or, or afraid of being, you know, in all these different spaces that they're not confident to be in. Service dogs are definitely governed under certain systems. Since they are still dogs, they do follow, follow, fall under um, respective certification laws. Um, you need to get your service dog spayed or neutered. You need a medical letter prescribing you the dog. And in Canada, or at least where I live in BC, service dogs need to pass um, a certifi certified public access test and be officially registered with the province. So medical letters control who gets to be disabled as well. Um, how disabled do you need to be in order to qualify for a service animal? Um, I think also with emotional support animals. I'm not sure, but I feel like you'd probably be more discriminated against just because uh, you know, mental health and accessing things is very like precarious. Um, and uh, the public access test uh, it really only tests for obedience, not if the animal is the right fit for the handler and vice versa. Um, in the service dog uh, community, there's also like endless fraud websites that will send you documents to certify your animal as well as um, fake medical letters. <laughs> so there is like a lot of like weird certification systems going on and you kind of you as a disabled person are kind of thrown in trying to understand like what's legal, what's not legal, what your rights are, um, and then how do you even get a dog, and then how do you train it, and what like tasks are con constitute a service dog versus like an emotional support animal, and I feel like it's very difficult to kind of get those things in the beginning. Um, and. I, I was reading over um, this disability scholar, Margaret Price, um, and she kind of pushes back against this impulse to control bodies, which she calls the biocertification process, to challenge the boundaries between what is a service dog and who is disabled. She's also a service dog user, and she's a handler to a small dog, and she says it's of an unknown breed who is partially blind, slow, and very old. So she asked this really important question, 
Can a disabled animal do service or support work? And while a service dog could be any size or any breed and it can become a service animal at any age, the fitness or hyper ability of the animal is usually not up for debate. And I think this further controls and limits the idea of what bodies are capable, capable of support, um, both human and non-human alike, and what support looks like. I had read the description and I was like, okay, you know, and then when I started to watch it and think about my relationship with um, Dim Sum, my dog, I realized that she was there for support. Um, and I guess I hadn't really thought about that before. Um, she was adopted in a time of need. And as I, had mentioned to you, I guess I felt selfish watching the film, um, knowing that I had actually relied on her so much when maybe my needs aren't as pressing. That's harmful though in, in any disability circle too, is to have this kind of like competitive, Definitely. you know, about who needs this more. Um, I don't think it should work like that. I think it. I think that does happen, just because resources for um, disabled people are so like few. <laughs> like there's so few resources for us um, that there get, becomes this like built-in hostility to other people who we don't think are deserving of like accessing those resources or services when we can't get them, which is like really. Uh, not good, uh, very harmful for everyone involved. Um, and just, I don't think people should be policed um, on that sort of thing. And I think emotional support animals are very, very legitimate. So I just wish that with ESAs especially that people could um, go to organizations more freely just to get some basic training so that they could also bring their ESAs into more spaces without other handler teams being harmed or, you know, the dog being harmed or the dog harming other dogs or people, for instance. What bodies are capable of support? Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting question. I have a lot of questions and no <laughs> answers right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's totally fair. I mean, this is, you're working through all of this. I think people are just so confused legally in Canada, what's allowed with service dogs. It's so behind because um, generally I think people just think service dog and they think guide dog for people who are blind and they don't really know about any other um, disabilities that this kind of thing can help with. Mm -hmm. 
I was originally researching everything before going over to meet Coyote. There's these fraud websites, there's other service dog um, pages um, similar to Coyote's. Um, people copy her though, like doing cosplaying service dog stuff. But then I also found a lot of um, kind of like small businesses run by disabled people who made custom um, service dog vests and harnesses and patches. And I thought that was, I kind of, I wish that there had been more time to kind of showcase those in the documentary because Coyote has some really awesome patches. Like some of them say like Handler is crazy where the title comes from or Caution Handler Bites. Um, and their friends at the convention, one person, she has epilepsy. So I think she had like epilepsy specific patches. And that becomes also like a really cool way of kind of educating people around you about like what that service dog is like specifically for um and like helps to gain visibility around that because you're used to just seeing like oh a guide dog harness or you see like the dogs being trained by the organizations like out in public um but you don't really see that any for any other service animal Well, the cosplay and also just the harnesses and patches are just like a really fun way of kind of just personalizing things because a lot of things for disabled people are really ugly. <laughs> um, so it's kind of nice that there are these like, you know, fun options out there for people just to kind of, I don't know, seem like everyone else. <laughs> to use terms like normalcy only because I feel like it erases kind of how disabled people have to do things differently rather than inviting it to exist alongside what is normal and learning and appreciating that difference. Um, I don't think Coyote is particularly interested in being normal in the sense of being able-minded or able-bodied. The film opens with her saying, quote, I know I'm crazy. I've been crazy for a long time. I've been broken for a long time. I don't know what normal is. This is normal for me. So here, you know, she's saying, or she is allowed to define what is normal for her. Um, she later says like, you know, her leg gives out in the store. She falls down, she gets up. People look at her like she's crazy. She has PTSD episodes, migraines and so on. And these are just the things that she knows and it's complicated. Um, and that's what um, reference disability scholars again, what they call crip time or non-normative time. And um, Alison Kafer, another disability scholar, explains that uh, rather than bend disabled bodies and minds to meet the clock, crypt time bends the clock to meet disabled bodies and minds. And I think finding ways to meet disabled bodies and minds at points where they feel normal and comfortable is really important and beautiful. Like being disabled, from my own experiences and from my friends' experiences, it can be very isolating. And maybe in Coyote's case, working with a dog, um, I feel it allows for a lot of meaningful connections to take place. 
for her and I think for some other people too, like you can't really feel connection through medication and certain medications just isolate you further. Not that I'm against medication in any way, but um, service animals are framed as medical equipment, but they're not machines. They're emotional and physical beings and our relationship, I think, to them is complex and interdependent and should also be full of care for them. Like you need to provide them with good living and working conditions and let them retire at a good age or take care of them when they get sick. And um, that care has to go both ways. And I think there's a lot you can learn from um, working with an animal in that way. Um, I think I still have a lot of questions around your question that I can't answer, but those were the things that I was thinking of. In disability studies especially, there's a lot of work around interdependency. Um, I think the easiest way of maybe describing that is, you know, if you're disabled and you have like a support person, um, you also have to realize that that support person isn't a machine either, um, similar to the service dog, and that your support person um, also needs good working conditions in order for them to kind of support you in whatever ask aspects of like daily care that you need and um, kind of like working through that. I mean, it's difficult because depending on like your level of um, support that you require as a disabled person in many different circumstances, um, there's like quite a bit of risk and vulnerability and um, sometimes you need to treat, I don't know, I feel like sometimes support people and other support things are kind of treated um, as, as a one-way direction <laughs> uh, without really regarding kind of like those interdependent connections. I don't know if that makes any sense. But... Yep. That makes perfect sense. This was um, probably the most important uh, moment in our filming process and completely accidental. Uh, we had put a mic on Coyote beforehand and our sound guy, Raf, he decided to remotely record uh, her going into the kids' school with banners since we weren't granted filming access inside. So I think like once inside and alone, away from the crew, um, Coyote was very much free game for discrim discrimination. And uh, as I already said, this is a pretty common experience for service dog users when they leave their house and go in out into public. I think also besides the fact that the principal has a history of discriminating against Coyote, the problem in this particular scenario maybe was that Banner was actually not visibly marked as a service dog while entering the school. And um, as I already said too, like service dog vests um, can visually cue the public that yes, okay, this is a service dog and not a pet. But then of course it also marks the handler as disabled. 
and not everyone wants to be made visible this way because there's always risk in that visibility. Um, and if the only obvious visual marker that you're disabled is a service dog, then I think this invites further discrimination or even harassment into whether or not you're legitimately disabled. Um, I know that Coyote always posts on Banner's page like the horrors of going to Walmart and how much longer it takes her to do her shopping there because people want to ask her about her um, medical issues and like what Banner is for and like really personal things that you don't want to tell like everyone and you don't want that to be like the first point of um, connection with people either and I don't think the people who are asking her are like genuinely interested in making a good connection with the coyote they're just being nosy <laughs> um and i'm not really sure what to do with this issue of visibility here either and i think it just comes down to problems in policy and public understanding and i, I think i forget if i mentioned but banner now has new patches on her service harness that say fuck off so maybe that's one solution um <laughs> And I think it's a really good way of kind of pushing back against these ableist encounters in public. Um, I think Coyote has uh, other standard kind of patches like, please don't pet me, I'm working, to the more defiant patches like caution handler bites to the ultra defiant um, fuck off patch that I just mentioned. And then people still react and they're like, oh my God, that dog has a patch he's got fuck <laughs> off on it. That's so offensive. Like. You're so rude, and it's just like, oh no, like you don't get it, like, <laughs> you know, like you still don't get it. <laughs> I think, because I've just been in a in a very particular place with my own health. Um, that my like way of thinking about disability has really changed, um, and I, I think it, I feel like it's hard to include disability unless you experience it um, or you know someone close to you who, who experiences it. Otherwise, I think it's like very easy to forget, um, and maybe that's not a very great answer. But um, I think just including us and having us in the community and listening to us is like the most important thing. Um, but then also like it's very hard because we don't have to want to be like educating everyone all the time. <laughs> uh, that's also why I wanted to make the documentary, you know, like if someone asks me about service dogs, I can maybe send them this documentary and they can learn a little bit more and I kind of made a project and it can be sent out there and, and kind of like help people learn a bit about this very specific person and what they need. Mm -hmm.